Well, if you would, please, take out your Bibles right now and turn in them to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you can turn in the back portion of that to page 161, and you would be at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, I want you to think about something. The book that you are handling right now is a treasure. Many, many, many generations of followers of Jesus Christ never had the experience that you have right now with that book in your hand. One of my favorite uh, passages about the Bible is found in Psalm 19, where it talks about the truth that is in this book that you hold. And it tells us there that that truth will restore our soul. It will refresh our inner being. That truth will make you wise. It will give you skill for living your life. It will rejoice your heart. It will give you joy in your life. It will enlighten your eyes. It will give you the truth that you need about God and about life and about death. And Psalm 19 goes on to say that the truth in this book that we're looking at is more desirable than gold. Yes, than a whole giant pile of gold. And that the truth in this book, when you keep it, brings great reward. It's an awesome, awesome book. It is a true treasure. So it is important, men and women, how we handle the book. Now, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll notice that at the end of the book, there's a series of what we call staccato commands. They're very crisp, they're very pithy, they're very much to the point. It begins in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, examine everything, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. A whole series of these very short, quick commands. And as we saw last week, they can be broken into two sections. Verses 16 to 18 gives instruction on how we are to thrive spiritually, which is what we looked at last week. And then verses 19 to 22 tells us how we are to handle truth, to handle the book that God has given to us. Now, if you have your Bible open, I would like to read verses 19 to 22. would invite you to read along in your Bible as I'm reading through these verses. Through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit says to us, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And we really want to begin this morning by asking each of ourselves this question. How are we handling the treasure of this book? How are you handling it? How am I handling it? Now as we begin to move into these few verses, I want to lay out for you today's plan. We're basically going to look at two things today. First of all, we're going to look at some background before we actually get into the verses. And then secondly, we're going to look at the guidelines for handling truth. 
that God gives to us here. So we're going to look at some background, and then we're going to look at the guidelines. So let's begin by looking at some background. Now when you read through these verses, do not you not get the sense that there's some issue involved? There's some issue somewhere. In fact, the command in verse 19 and the command in verse 20 could be translated in English with the word stop. Stop quenching the Spirit. Stop despising prophetic utterances. What's really going on here by way of some background? Now, I might want to remind you that 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And you remember that the believers in the early years of the church really had no New Testament. In fact, at the time that 1 Thessalonians was written, only the Gospel of Matthew had been written, the book of James, and the book of Galatians. That's all that existed, all that had been written by the time this book was written. And in fact, the very next book to be written was 2 Thessalonians, which happened just a few months after 1 Thessalonians. And we know that in the Old Testament era, in the early New Testament era, that God spoke through prophets. A prophet was a mouthpiece for God. And I want us to see that there are two functions that a prophet had. The first function that a prophet had was to foretell events. And I want you to turn with me, keeping your finger in 1 Thessalonians, because we'll be back, to Acts chapter number 21. And in Acts 21, we see an illustration of a prophet foretelling an event. Predicting ahead of time something that would happen. Notice in Acts chapter 21, verse 10, it says, and this is Luke really reporting these events. He says, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet, someone who was a mouthpiece for God, named Agabus, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, which of course was Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, if you know the story and the historical event, that's exactly what ends up happening. Paul ends up being imprisoned and turned over to the Gentiles. Well, this prophet, Agabus, foretold that event. And the standard that was to be applied to those who claim to be prophets is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, because it says there that if what a prophet predicts and foretells to happen does not come true, then you know that prophet was not sent from me. Two functions that a prophet had. The first one was to foretell. The second function a prophet had was to forth tell, to extrapolate on truth, to teach on truth. Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 32. We have an example here of prophets forth telling, not predicting something, but expounding on truth. 
Acts 15, verse 32, says that Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, what did they do? Encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. The prophets were forthtelling about truth, expounding on truth, giving a lengthy message. I always just love that phrase, lengthy message. It just always warms my heart when I see lengthy message. Ministers to me personally. But there was a real special need for there to be, in the early church times, prophets, because the New Testament scriptures were still developing, right? And Ephesians 2.20, though, tells us that the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Now, in my personal opinion, prophecy is not normative today like it was in the early New Testament era. I mean, now God can do anything He wants, and God could still foretell events and still use someone with a prophetic word to foretell. But I think much of what is claimed to be prophecy today by many running around bears little resemblance to prophecy in the New Testament. In fact, it's something something's very interesting. If you'll turn with me to 2 Peter, it's tucked behind the book of Hebrews and James. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and I want you to see that there appears to be a hint of a shift that would happen sometime in the New Testament era as things were emerging. I just want you to notice this. Notice in 2 Peter 2.1, Peter writes, and it says, False prophets also arose among the people in the past. In other words, there were false prophets who came along. And then he says this, Just as there will be in the future false teachers among you. In other words, before the New Testament was put together, you would have false prophets. Implication being that as the New Testament gets put together, you will have false teachers, like there's going to be some sort of a transition that will occur. So we want to look at how we handle truth. What are some of the guidelines for for all this? Now before we get there, what is really the background issue? What's actually happening here? Well, I think there's a hint given to us in the next letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now remember, this was written just months later. Not years later, just months later. And this, I think, gives us an idea of what, what seemed to be happening in the background. He says, now we request, verse 1, of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, future prophetic events, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it came from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, apparently there had been some false letters being sent to them or some false message being given. And he basically says, don't buy into that at all. In other words, it appears that the Thessalonians were feeling a little bit burned. 
by some truth that had come to them, or so-called truth. And it almost would appear that they had decided, well, we're only going to hear truth if it comes from Paul, only from Paul. And sometimes people have that same attitude today. You know, I, I want to really only learn truth from John MacArthur. I only really want to learn truth from John Piper. I only want to learn truth from Chuck Swindoll. Fortunately, there are far few people running around who would say, I only want to learn truth from Bruce Hess. But that's just a little bit of background. You see what's going on here. And so because of that, he decides to give some guidelines. We want to look at the guidelines for handling truth. And here's the first one. We see it in verse 19. Don't quench the Spirit. I think the NIV says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And you remember, the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead, the one who indwells those of us who know Christ personally. And what is the job, what is the ministry that the Holy Spirit is to have? The Holy Spirit's ministry is to teach us, to guide us, and to transform us. And Paul says, don't quench the Spirit, capital S. Don't douse the Spirit's ministry. Don't stifle His influence. Don't retard His working. How would we do that? How would we do that? Well, I think we can do that when we are insensitive to the truth that the Holy Spirit wants us to see. When we are stubborn and when we are prideful, we can quench the Spirit. Turn with me to the book of James, which we passed over a few minutes ago. And I think we have a good illustration of how this can work in our everyday life as we handle the truth. In James chapter 1, verses 22 and following, Notice what he says to these believers. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, he says, it's like someone looking in a mirror, noticing that their hair is all wacko, and then they walk away from it and they don't do anything about it. So it can be when we handle the truth, and we know the truth is putting its finger on something we need to address, and we just sort of walk away from it. And notice it says in verse 25, one who looks intently at the perfect law the book of truth, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man, this woman, will be blessed in what he or she does. In other words, we quench the Spirit, we douse the ministry of the Spirit when the convicting work of the Spirit is ignored by us. We just sort of brush it off. You know, I I like to talk about how the Holy Spirit likes to just sort of knock on our life. You ever notice how the Spirit does that? Hello, Bruce, 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 Bruce. Attention over here for a moment. 
You know, that's not the attitude that you ought to have towards your wife. That's not a godly attitude that you have. And it's interesting how easy it is for me to sort of go, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know that. And just sort of brush it off. See, what Paul's saying is don't, don't do that. When God comes along with truth, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 14, that we are to be patient with everyone, we're to be long-suffering towards them. And that includes our spouse. And so when I'm knocking, saying, wait a minute, you need to heed the knock and not just go, ah, I know that. Has the Holy Spirit been knocking in your life this week? Has he been knocking, saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some behavior that needs to be addressed. Or maybe knocking, whoa, 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 here. there's an attitude that should be confessed to me. Or maybe he's knocking and saying, there's a habit that you've got that needs to be changed. And what Paul is saying is, don't quench that. Don't douse that with water. Don't let the Spirit's ministry be quenched out. So the first guideline for handling the truth of this book is don't quench the Spirit. The second guideline is given to us in verse 20. In the New American Standard, it says, don't despise prophetic utterances. In the NIV, it says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Now, this is pretty strong language, by the way. Don't count prophetic utterances and prophecies as insignificant. Don't outright reject them, is really the language here. If I were going to word the guideline in a vernacular that we might be able to identify with, it would be this, don't quickly dismiss truth. Don't quickly dismiss truth. Don't be quick to say, ah, that's not really directed at, at me. <laughs> uh, well, well, that's out of the Old Testament. That's got nothing to do with me. Or as Mark was opening us up to, in the book of Revelation to the letters of the churches in chapters 2 and 3 to go, ah, that's, <laughs> that's stuff out of Revelation, you know. Nobody really knows what that's all about. That's, that's really not anything for me. Oh, wait a minute now, that truth, that's true. <laughs> you know, I've got, I, there's somebody else in the church I know who really needs to hear that truth. Uh, you know, I, I have a brother or sister, I hope that they're really going to pay attention to that truth. You know, it's so easy to think, well, that's what, you know, so-and-so needs to hear. I sure hope so-and-so is tuned in. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is part of what he's saying. Don't quickly dismiss truth. You know, it's interesting, in Psalm 19, we talked a little bit about that at the beginning, but one of the things that David says there to God there is he said, would you cleanse me, God, from hidden faults? 
It's an amazing statement. He's saying things that I don't see, that I don't even know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we know are, are faults that are out in the open that we may have spiritually. But he said, it's the hidden ones, God. I want you to deal with those, the ones that are blind spots to me that I don't even see. Will you, will you just see the opposite attitude here? Do what you have to do. What are the guidelines? What are we to do when we handle truth? Number one, don't quench the spirit. Number two, don't quickly dismiss truth. And then number three, put teaching to the test. Put teaching to the test. Verse 21 says, examine everything carefully. The verb here, examine, means to test things for authenticity. It means to verify them, to see if they measure up. This guideline to put teaching to the test is really a call for us to develop spiritual judgment and spiritual discernment. And you know, the greatest example of that in the New Testament is found in the book of Acts. Turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter number 17 and verse 11, where it talks about the believers who lived in the city of Berea. And frankly, men and women, we are all called to be Bereans. I want you to notice what it says in verse 17. Now these in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. We're even studying the letter to the Thessalonians. You see almost why the Thessalonians needed to be instructed here. The people in Berea didn't. What made them more noble-minded? For they received the word with great eagerness. Here comes the truth, and I want to wrap my arms around it. But notice this, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Do you know who was bringing the truth to Berea? Do you know who was teaching them truth? It was the Apostle Paul. And they didn't just go, well, it's Paul, so it must be 100% accurate. They said, you know what, we're going to check what Paul says with the Word of God that they had available to them. Do you know, men and women, in the church today, there is a lot of sloppy theology out there. There's a lot of weak teaching. There's a lot of twisted teaching. There's a lot of distorted teaching. And I want, I want to just give you a hint here that I think is very important. Just because someone claims to speak the mind of God, just because someone uses the Bible, just because someone speaks with spiritual overtones, doesn't mean that what they say matches up with the rest of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've watched the Christian community, you know, evolve in certain ways over the years. And one of the things I have to say is that right now, being biblical and being theological 
is largely out of vogue. It's like, yeah, you don't really want to be too biblical. You don't want to be too theological. Being careful with doctrine is now being viewed by many as relatively unspiritual. You know, to be so concerned about doctrine, that's an unspiritual attitude. By the way, doctrine means nothing more than teaching. That's just what the word means. Being accurate with teaching is unspiritual? I don't think so. What does he say? In 1 Thessalonians 5, put teaching to the test. When Mark took you all through the letters to the churches, you might remember the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.2. And one of the things he commends that church for is this. He says, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. He says, there are people running around claiming that they are teaching really the truth of Scripture, and you put them to the test. And I'm commending you for that. And I would hope the same commendation would come to us as a church. Now, what are some illustrations of, of this kind of thing going on in our day? And there's a lot of different things we could tackle. I want to just tackle one. And it's one of the things that, that motivates my heart a lot. And it's what I call the gospel of the good life. In fact, about a dozen years ago, we did a whole series on what's commonly called the teaching about health and wealth. And health and wealth teaching in the gospel of the good life basically says that God wills and God provides for, in essence, God guarantees the prosperity and the health of every believer. That is the heart of the teaching. Now, it's contingent on us having faith. It's contingent on us giving. But the idea is that God wills for it, He provides for it, and in essence guarantees that every believer, if you have the faith and if you give, will experience prosperity and health. And I just want to look at one passage that is used by those who promote the gospel of the good life. It's found in the gospel of Mark. So let's turn there for a moment. Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. We'll just back up, I guess, and read verse 29. Jesus is talking. He says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, not in the future, but in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so those who like to promote this gospel of the good life would say, well, this is the promise of the hundredfold return. And I want to read you just a portion of the book, God's Will is Prosperity, written by Gloria Copeland. Here's what she writes. The first thing the Lord led me to realize was how great the hundredfold return really is. 
You give one dollar for the gospel's sake, and a hundred dollars belongs to you. You give ten dollars, and you receive one thousand dollars. You give one thousand dollars, and you receive one hundred thousand dollars. Give one house, you receive one hundred houses, or one house worth one hundred times as much. Give one airplane, receive one hundred times the value of the airplane. Give one car, and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, she writes, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. And then she adds this, since this great return already belongs to you and is just waiting for you to apply the faith pressure, you can receive the hundredfold on your past giving as well. Yes, the hundredfold is retroactive. Praise the Lord. In other words, if you will give and give and give, God will make you rich. That's what's being taught around our country right now. And that kind of teaching of the gospel of the good life has, has led one individual to rewrite part of Psalm 23. They wrote it this way. The Lord is my banker. My credit is good. He gives me the key to his strong box. He restores my faith and riches. He guides me in the paths of prosperity for his name's sake. There's a, a little bit of irony to that. But that's a reflection of what this teaching is. Now what's really interesting to me is if you take a little closer look at Mark chapter 10 and you go back and what's the first rule of good interpretation, men and women? What's the very first rule of accurate interpretation? Someone tell me what it is. It's context. Look at verses in their context. And if you go back and you look at the context of Mark chapter 10, you'll find that Jesus is really saying the treasure on earth can be a stumbling block spiritually. And in fact, in verses 17 to 22 of this, he, he's talking to the rich young ruler. And the idea of this guy was that wealth was more important to that young man than salvation itself. And if he was going to choose one or the other, he would choose wealth over salvation. In fact, in verse 23 of chapter 10, Jesus makes the point that wealth tends to give false security to people. When people are wealthy, they tend to have no need of God. They tend to have no sense of a need of salvation. And that's the thrust of the section. Now, in verse 28, here's what happens. Peter says to, to Jesus, Well, we've left everything and we've followed you. We, we, we've given up all kinds of things on earth. We've left our homes. We don't have a house to live in anymore. We've left our family. We've left our relatives behind. What, what does that mean? I mean, how do we process all of that? And so Jesus says to him in verses 29 and 30, 
No one who has left their house or their brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or families for my sake and for the gospel's sake will really have no benefit from, from, from life. Notice it says, He will receive a hundred times as much now in the present days houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, I want you to notice very quickly what's being promised there in the verse. Okay, you left your home. There'll be many homes available to you as you follow me. You've left your families. There's going to be a whole spiritual family that you're going to come in contact with. You might have had two sisters, but as you come into the family of God and you follow after me, you're going to have multiple sisters. How many sisters are there in this church? Hundreds of sisters in this church. He says, you have left, some of you, your farms. Literally, by the way, it's fields in the original. You've left your houses. You've left your fields. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of shelter and food. He says, you've left your source of shelter, you've left your source of food. Is God going to leave you hanging? No. God is going to supply through his spiritual family. That's what he's saying here. You had one little field that you grew, home, uh, you grew your food in, and, and you're going to now, as the spiritual family offers you all of their fields and the f- food that they've grown, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to provide for you. This isn't just a promise of the gospel of the good life. In fact, it's interesting, in verse 30, he adds a little phrase there. You're also, in this life, going to uh, also inherit persecutions. I think he threw that in there almost to stress this is not some kind of good time wagon you're going to be on, but it's part of what following me will bring. I'll provide the shelter you need. I'll provide the food that you need through the people of God but it's also going to mean there'll be persecutions that will come. So the question is, did the disciples understand Jesus to be saying, if you give $10, you're going to receive $1,000? And the answer to that question is, no, not at all. Now I want to remind you, it, it does not mean that God is against wealth. And I want you to just jot down the passages, you can look at them later, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10 and verses 17 to 19. doesn't say God is against wealth. Just basically the message he has about wealth for those who are believers in Jesus Christ is this. Handle with extreme care. doesn't mean that God can't use wealth and that he doesn't give wealth. But it's just something we need to handle with extreme care. Gordon Fee, who is himself an Assembly of God minister and a professor, wrote this. Despite all uh, protests to the contrary, at its base, the cult of prosperity offers a man-centered rather than a God-centered theology. Even though one is regularly told that it is to God's own glory that we should prosper, the appeal is always made to our own selfishness and sense of well-being. In fact, the only one who could possibly believe this non-biblical nonsense is someone who wants to. And the only reason one would want to is because of its appeal to one's selfishness. What's fascinating to me 
is there are many who can see through the whole weakness of the gospel of the good life, and even some in the non-church community can see through it, and yet you've got so many people in the church community who are not putting teaching to the test. In the late 80s, there was a song that came out, written, by the way, by Margaret Archer and Chet Atkins, but it was sung by Ray Stevens. Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? And I'd like to sing that song for you right now. No, I'm not singing the song for you now. Those of you who've been around for a while know I was just pulling your chain on that one. But here's how part of the song goes. Woke up this morning, turned on my TV set. There in living color was something I can't forget. This man was preaching at me, yeah, laying on the charm, asking me for 20 with 10,000 on his arm. He wore designer clothing and a big smile on his face, selling me salvation while they sang Amazing Grace. Asking me for money when he had all the signs of wealth. Almost wrote a checkout, yeah, but then I asked myself, would Jesus wear a pinky ring? Would he drive a fancy car? Would his wife wear furs and diamonds? Would his dressing room have a star? If he came back tomorrow, there's something I'd like to know. Would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television show? And so if even people in the musical community can see through this, certainly those of us in the church ought to put teaching to the test. Now, this prosperity teaching is just one example. There's all kinds of illustrations of it. The whole idea now that's growing popular is that the practice of homosexual behavior is an acceptable thing. We ought to be accepting that in the church. By the way, we did a two-part series on that we call the same-sex controversy, if you'd like to delve into that a little bit more. But even Bruce Hess's teaching, men and women, needs to be put to the test by you. We need to search the scriptures to see whether these things be so. And a lot of times what happens, I've noticed in the church, is that is if something is new, it's automatically wrong. <laughs> I'll never forget, we had, a, we had a dear guy come into Wildwood a number of years ago. And um, we were getting a little bit more contemporary in our, in our worship style. And he came up to me and he said this to me. He said, I want you to understand something. It's very, very important you understand this. It is wrong to clap on Sunday morning. It's okay to clap on Sunday evening. But it is wrong to clap on Sunday morning. Now, I, I said to him, brother... Where did you get that from in the Bible? And see, in the essence, really what he was saying is, this was new to him for people to clap on Sunday morning because in the church environment that he'd come from, you could clap on Sunday night, but you couldn't clap on Sunday morning. So because it was new, it was wrong. And really, in essence, what he needed to do is to put that claim of truth to the test and see what the Bible had to say about it. So we put teaching to the test. Now after we evaluate, after we test, after we apply spiritual discernment, after we have been a Berean, verse 21 tells us, 
of 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to hold fast to the good. We are to embrace the good. And then it says we are to, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Different words for evil, by the way, in the New Testament. This is the word paneros, P-O-N-E-R-O-S. And it, it, it emphasizes destructive effects. You put truth to the test, you embrace the good, and you avoid the destructive. All forms of teaching that are destructive doctrinally and destructive morally. Don't expose yourself to teaching that is false and teaching that is twisted. Men and women, the Bible that God has given to us is a great treasure. How we handle it is very important. Now, as we close today, having looked at this truth, I want us to think about two questions by way of life response. This is a good thing for us to ask ourselves, and maybe later today and maybe going into the week, you could ask yourself these two questions. The first question is this, is my heart teachable and reachable? Am I kind of closed down? I don't want God getting in here, or am I opened up like this? Remember what David said in Psalm 19? Even the things I'm blind to, God, would you cleanse them from my life? Is my heart teachable and reachable? And then the second question by way of life response, am I growing in spiritual discernment? Am I growing in spiritual discernment? You know, the Treasury Department, when it wants to train its agents to recognize counterfeit money. Do you know what they do? They don't march a whole series of a whole lot of counterfeits out here and say, we want you to see what all this counterfeit looks like. What they do is the way they basically train their agents is they bring out real money and they let them study that. Study, study, study the real thing. And then after they have done that, you see, recognize a counterfeit is very easy to do. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can turn there, verse 15 will be the final thing we look at before we close today, is a great verse about our need to grow in spiritual discernment. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent, this is for you and for me, from God, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's the challenge that God has for us, to handle accurately this great treasure. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have given us a great book like this. And Lord, we really look forward to continuing to grow in our discernment as individuals and as a church. And Father, I believe that the very best way that we can do that is to simply have open, teachable, reachable hearts. We pray that you'll work in our heart. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.